Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I'm Emily Nicola, sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Joining me today is senior producer at CanadaLand, Sarah Lornuk. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Emily. Today on the show, we'll be discussing another conflict, of course, in Ukraine that shows how our media struggles to get basic conflict details to the forefront and the fact that not all humans are equal in the face of war. Welcome to Shortcuts, Sarah, where we talk shit about the news. Let's get to it. This episode is supported by Maxine Proctor, Brent Barron, Leanne Shaken, Ron Ginsberg, Eddie de Cunha, Sal Bennett, Yvonne Helder, and Gio. Mon nom c'est Gio. Je suis travailleur culturel passé à Jojake, Montréal. Je soutiens Canada Land parce que je crois que le journalisme qui se questionne à chaque étape et à voix haute me donne des pistes de réflexion pour digérer de façon critique le bombardement d'informations au quotidien. En tant que Montréalais de la diaspora, je trouve que les manquements éthiques de l'exploitation canadienne dans le sud global ne sont jamais assez dénoncés et je remercie l'équipe de Commons pour la série sur l'industrie minière. Russia struck at the heart of Ukraine's second largest city, laying waste to Russia's claim 
It's only targeting military sites. The Ukrainian will to fight within that initial first phase of those five days um, was exceptional. As those troops attempt to repel the Russian invasion, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, made another impassioned plea to his European neighbors. Once again, asked to have Ukraine admitted into the European Union. What is the immediate economic fallout of Russia's attack on Ukraine? And how can governments and how can you prepare to survive this age of uncertainty? So, Sarah, last Thursday, there has been news coming from all around the world that confirmed that Russian forces had invaded Ukraine, as we all know. Now we're recording this on Wednesday, and by the time this comes out, the conflict will have gone on for a week with a lot of heavy news coming in every day. One of the most packed news cycle I think I've seen in a really long time. Mm-hmm. You yourself, you've written a piece for the Winnipeg Free Press that came out this past Monday called Heartbreaking to See Ukraine Wrecked by War Once Again. Mm-hmm. For those who haven't read it, what is your piece about? I should start by saying that I don't often write columns. I rarely venture into opinion unless I feel like I have something that can, something that is missing from the media landscape. And so in this instance, like I am a Ukrainian Canadian. Virtually my entire family came over from Ukraine at different points, but particularly my grandmother on my father's side came over post-World War II. And so the piece is about the generations it's taken for my family to heal from that conflict. And that my heart is really broken, not only because there are going to be a lot of casualties from this conflict, almost assuredly, but also that like the hundreds of thousands of people who are fleeing, though they might be physically safe, the people who will flee later, they they have a, a lot of work cut out for them in the coming years that will heal their family, you know, across generations. And I think that that's something we often lose track of in conflict reporting is that it's not just about the number of people who are dead in the conflict, but about the the repercussions that last decades. I mean, it's been 76 years <laughs> since since my grandmother came to Canada and she's passed now, but, you know, the healing continues. And the piece also highlights that like a big part of the healing process in my family, for me personally, at least, was being able to return to Ukraine. And in 2019, I actually went back, not on a, a personal leisure trip, but to report on the conflict that's been going on in Ukraine for the last eight years. Yeah, I feel I feel like that's one of the elements that really touched me in your piece is that, you know, one of the key elements is the, the issue of intergenerational trauma. You you speak to about your grandmother who survived World War II, and basically you're saying that there might be some healing still going on from what's happening now. By the end of the 21st century, still still happening, still going on, still ongoing. Yeah, I think I think we often lose the time perspective when we talk about conflict. This isn't something mm-hmm. that goes on for, you know, as long as the conflict rages. It goes on for, for decades. Yeah, so a war can be over, but the war is not over in a exactly. sense. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's that's not specific to Ukraine. No. That's something I think a lot of Canadians who maybe can't relate to Ukraine don't understand a lot about what's going on in Ukraine. They can at least relate to that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I was really excited for us to have this conversation this week because... I felt like I'm like coming from a completely <laughs> different point of view or perspective to that conflict because, well, I, obviously I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not Russian either. I don't have any roots in the region. 
And I'm someone who, unlike you, is a regular columnist who's forced to basically, well, I I chose my fate, but (laughs) I'm forced (laughs) to be writing, you know, give opinions on a weekly basis in Le Devoir and in the Montreal Gazette. And I do like TV commentary as well. And we've been knowing for weeks, if not months, but especially the last weeks. I mean, the, the conflict just broke out last week, but it's been it's been coming for a while, obviously. And I felt like I need to read and listen and learn as much as I can on this region because my fear was kind of a little bit like repeating what happened with the pandemic in a sense that like overnight, everybody was talking about COVID-19 and very few people in journalism and like media commentary had a fucking clue what they were talking about. Absolutely. You're overnight experts. Exactly. (laughs) Overnight expert of the pandemic, not. Many of them did, but a lot of them did not do their homework. And that had an impact on, on the coverage of like such a traumatic worldwide event. And I'm wondering if that's not the same thing that's that's happening with the Ukraine-Russian conflict as well, where there's like so many people who've been offering commentary on television, radio, whatnot, or even like reporting on it who have like no clue what they're talking about. And I'm wondering, have people been doing their homework? Do you feel like people have been doing their homework? I mean, (laughs) it's so hard to make a generalization about coverage since it's been like wall to wall on every outlet. But I think there was a couple things that popped out to me in the first couple days after the invasion that like really struck me as as you have people producing news that don't understand the context in which they're producing it. One was like off the hop was that like Ukraine's at war. Ukraine's been at war for eight years. So that's just like factually incorrect. This is absolutely in escalation and it's an invasion that hasn't been seen up till now. Sorry, you're referring to annexion of Crimea and then the eastern yeah. the, the eastern regions, the conflict in the yeah. eastern regions. Yeah, okay. In 2014, Russian troops went into Crimea and in the eastern provinces. And ever since, there's been, there's been an ongoing conflict in the eastern provinces. When I was there in 2019, like, I, I went to the military hospital. I spoke to soldiers. I spoke to all kinds of people who were like, yeah, no one cares that we're here. No one cares that this war is going on. So in the initial coverage after the invasion, it kind of seemed like people didn't even know that there had been a war going on. That was like very initial stages. And then after that, it seemed that for days, the narrative lasted that Ukrainian forces are repelling Russians in a way that no one expected and that Russians weren't expecting. And While that might be true, it was a little early to declare, you know, like victory of the Ukrainian people. And that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of bravery shown and that there wasn't a lot of emotional support behind them, especially from Canada, given we have such a large Ukrainian population. And I'm glad to see as much focus as I did on people fleeing and the human impact of displacement in conflict. However, This wasn't the full force of the Russian military, and it's difficult to even record this show on Wednesday because we could be looking at a completely different circumstance by the time this airs on Thursday. So to have had days of saying like, oh, look, the Ukrainian military is being as successful as they are, like, that was was true to a point, but I, I lacked anywhere finding the context of like, okay, that means probably more escalation will come next. I really wasn't hearing that in in the Canadian coverage. More so than that, I 
wasn't even hearing about troop movements or where where skirmishes were happening initially. Like that wasn't part of the coverage. It was very human focused, which I don't I don't disagree with. However, it can't be at the detriment of like actually providing basics of news about what's happening in a conflict. Do Russians hold any of these cities? Like I couldn't find right, that anywhere right. on Canadian media, like from the first few days of Canadian coverage. That kind of markedly changed Tuesday when when finally that started being more of the focus, as I think Canadian media realized that like this is about to get a lot worse. There's different pieces to media coverage of a conflict. There's the piece about where the troops are and like where did the last attack happened and what were how many people were injured and how many people passed away and like what happened. There's the geopolitical analysis of it, I guess, the, and the diplomatic aspect of it. Those different pieces, you're saying that they're they're not being balanced right now is what I'm hearing. At least not in the first few days. Like, it, it took a lot of days to start getting, the like, the basics of war coverage down. Right. Which was kind of alarming because normally it's the other way, right? Like, normally that's all you're kind of getting. All you're kind of getting is number of dead number of civilians wounded and like I found like I w- was having to search for that whereas the personal interest stories normally lag and those seem to be forefront so it, it's backwards from coverage of most conflicts that I've seen. Why do you think that is? I'm seeing a lot of people struggling to find trustworthy sources and there's so much like misinformation circulating as well. Do you think it's because journalists are so careful about publishing numbers and because the situation is evolving so fast. But you can still be transparent in where you're receiving numbers from, right? Like, these are the numbers being reported from so-and-so. These are the numbers we're hearing from here. Like, I I just want a range. (laughs) And that was just, like, absent. But I think there was this rush to cover the human aspect of it because Canada does have such an enormous Ukrainian population. And so newsrooms knew there would be a desire for that kind of coverage. I don't think they were wrong. It's just that, like, you can't forsake the other aspects of it. And and as far as people who aren't Ukrainian, who haven't been following, or even in the case of many Ukrainians who I don't think follow the happenings in Ukraine very closely, because they're probably a couple generations removed, I, I don't think there's been very good explainers to get people caught up, at least not in, in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, though, and that's that's what I'm trying to figure out myself when I say like I'm like reading and learning, and that's where where I find that there's some people doing that, but yeah, it is lacking. So maybe what you're flagging that's that's lacking is more like you know the factual basic information. What as a somebody who don't have roots in the region, I find hard to find is the the coverage of. What is Ukraine? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, what it came to be. And I don't know how how you're feeling about this, but I feel like Vladimir Putin in the last last couple of days, and obviously just even before he moved his, his troops last week, there's been so much propaganda coming from Russian authorities and Vladimir Putin himself about, like, Ukrainian history and trying to basically have some facts in there, but, like, twist them as a way to basically erase the existence of the Ukrainian people. It seems to me like people are so careful as to not basically echo Russian propaganda that there might be not talking about Ukrainian history at all and then giving the Russian side the monopoly of having that conversation. And I'm not sure that's serving 
people like myself who are just learning about the region as we're as events are unfolding. Well, and it's also an enormously complicated history. It also depends on what time frame of history you're you're working in. Like to understand this conflict, I think it's probably easiest to block off a chunk of history like that's happened since 2014, because while all of the stuff that happened prior to that is important, so much has happened since 2014 that I think there needs to be more focus on that. Like the fact that like Vladimir Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin has since 2014 said that Ukraine is not a state, that he doesn't respect its boundaries, that he wants to protect all Russian speaking people everywhere. Okay. Like that's an important part of this conversation. But for eight years, a war has waged in the eastern provinces in Ukraine. And that was a very important conflict then and no one paid attention. Like we paid attention when Crimea was annexed, but then then that really fell off everyone's radar. I was fortunate enough that when I was there, attention was raised again because of U.S. President Donald Trump's phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, you know, his perfect phone call that he was later impeached for because he was holding Ukrainian military aid over his head. So there's been two points in which this conflict has actually been important in Canadian media. It's been important the entire time. Right. This was always a known possible outcome, and Canadian media did not pay it the attention it deserved. The article I wrote about the conflict in eastern Ukraine, I couldn't sell it to a Canadian outlet. I ended up having my travel expenses were covered by a fellowship grant. Wow. So you're, you're saying people were not interested in the facts of what was going on over there? Yeah, I gave away that article because I was committed to the coverage, but Canadian news outlets have not been. And so I guess history is complicated. I understand what you're saying about not wanting to parrot the Russian propaganda talking points, things like the denazification of Ukraine, because there is an Azov battalion and it's a white nationalist battalion in Ukraine. That's all true. Does that mean that there's a, a, a reason to invade a country? I just feel like that, you know, that ignorance and the, I don't want to say lack of will, but just lack of educating people on, on the context. If we're going to be talking about it for years, there might be consequences to it. And, and there might be also, that might explain also some of the silences that you're, that you're speaking to. My hypothesis would be that a lot of people are not wanting to talk about it because there's, you know, pro-Russian separatists there. And like, of course, Russia is helping them, but it's murky. It doesn't fall into a clear narrative of like, all Ukrainians are like nationalists who want to join the EU. And then there's Vladimir Putin who wants to invade them. So because it doesn't fall into that very much like clear Manichaean worldview, I feel like maybe a lot of Canadian media would just not want to tell a story that's more complicated than that. Well, I think we often have a, a problem with not wanting to tell the complicated story, like just as a right. media <laughs> system. Like I wouldn't yeah. say that's specific to this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that is also, I think it's a lack of education. Here in Canada, there have been a number of instances where fascist symbols have popped up at pro-Ukrainian rallies. And it's not to say it's the majority. It's absolutely not. But Canadian journalists need to be familiar with the fascist symbols in the Ukrainian historical context. I'm talking red and black flags and images of a guy named Stepan Bandera. Give him a quick Google. 
journalists need to be more familiar with what those images are and what they mean in the Ukrainian historical context if we're going to be covering the story the way we are. Which goes back to my original point about, like, who's been doing their homework? <laughs> and, like, you know, let's get to it because... Yeah. As when the pandemic was unfolding, and I'm sorry I'm using this this parallel, it might be a really bad one, but like the fact that so many people had prior experience covering issues of public health had a huge impact on like the questions that were asked of of our government. And I'm I'm feeling it in reporting, but I feel like reporting is still being very careful, but I'm definitely feeling it in like radio and, and TV commentary, which sometimes get even more like views than like actual reporting, right? And so, and when people who are asked to speak to the conflict are basically just repeating world leaders talking point, because that's what like most easily accessible to them because they don't have views on this beyond what, you know, our government and other governments are saying. I worry about the consequences of that, to be honest. I do too. I think the problem in the Eastern provinces and like the earlier parts of this conflict is that like leaked documents from the Kremlin show that like disinformation using planted political fronts in Ukraine has all been like documented as an aspect of this war to deliberately confuse the international community about what what action should be taken. So like those are our emails that Tune in Monday to find out more about this on the Monday show. But it, <laughs> it's part of a disinformation campaign that's been war waged in this country for, for over a decade. And so I think that's part of the problem with the complication of narratives and, you know, the fact that our news stories are generally three minutes long. And I don't know how you possibly tell all of this history in three minutes. Although, like, when you when you turn on the TV, as I actually still do in cases of, like, breaking news, and you have, like, eight interviews and none of them get to it, it's like, well, okay, we probably could have gotten there. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So, Sarah, I'd like to duly note something, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. So there's been this story that came out on Tuesday, and the title is 169 Potential Unmarked Graves Found at St. Bernard's Indian Residential Schools in Northern Alberta. This is a story published by Global News, but I'm seeing stories with similar titles published in a lot of different newspapers. I wanted to, first of all, shout out to Danielle Paradis from Canada Land as well, a contributing editor who picked up this editor's note that's been added to the top of the story. It says that the story initially said unmarked graves were found, but it has been updated to say anomalies consistent with unmarked graves were found. And Global News regret this this error. I, I find it interesting, and uh, Danielle sh- certainly did as well, in the sense that we've been having those kind of stories come out for the better part of the last year now. And there's always, you know, a lot of trigger because of what that kind of story means for, obviously, for survivors and their families. And I don't know, I just find it awkward that we would be reporting unmarked graves being found and then saying maybe they're unmarked graves and maybe we're, they're not. And I'm just worried about what it means for for the people who are the most impacted by this kind of story and this kind of news. Yeah. And I'm wondering who it serves to have stories told this way when you're like, maybe we found something, maybe we didn't. Archaeology, we're not sure yet exactly what we found. Might that just not trigger people? And whose narrative that it served to also be, you know, reporting news that are this uncertain? What, how do you feel about that? I mean, it is, it's tough, right? Like, you, you don't want to take away that healing moment that the gravity of the situation that graves are being found and you also want to be accurate but I I think it's absolutely valid to be very critical of why we're making that change in language now duly noted I also wanted to duly note something yes and this is actually you know my regular beat interest climate change on Monday there was another IPCC report that was released that I've actually not really seen really any coverage of in the Canadian media. Uh, I know there has been some, but it's definitely been woefully lacking. Are people being numb for like apocalyptic (laughs) news? Is that what's going on? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Climate change enough. And it it really does kind of highlight how important it would have been to have acted. I don't know, during peacetime when we weren't in the middle of a pandemic because now we're looking at a report that says 40% of the world's population is highly vulnerable to climate change and that a lot of the changes are irreversible and locked in that have already occurred and that we're putting too much reliance on technology solving this problem. And when there's a conflict, the scale of Ukraine conflict, to ask people to also care about that, it's it's a bit tough, but if we lose track of climate change, I mean, it, it will kill more than any conflict will in the long term. Well, welcome to Canada Land when we discuss, you know, which doom should take the most uh, airtime. Exactly. Welcome to, to doom land. <laughs> <laughs> Choose your apocalypse. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, nervous laugh. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that, Sarah. Duly noted. 
So, Sarah, there's been a couple of interesting pieces that came out this week. One by a colleague from Montreal, Tula Dumonis, writing in the Cult uh, Montreal blog about our reactions to Ukraine's suffering. Her title, our, our reactions to Ukraine's suffering, are very telling. And she's basically writing about the double standards that she's seeing and how we're covering this conflict and humanizing basically the people who are at the heart of that conflict and comparing that with both, you know, the lack of international attention and also the different quality of the coverage that has been given for other wars in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Ethiopia, Somalia, Afghanistan, and other places. Mm -hmm. There's a similar piece that also was just published on Wednesday in The Guardian. Title is, They are civilized and look like us, the racist coverage of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Basically picking up on some of the commentary that's been said in the last couple of days, saying, you know, Ukrainians are blonde and blue eyes and like... That's not, you know, quote unquote, normal refugees. And so it's more shocking somehow because the refugees happen to be blonde. So <laughs> it's it's problematic as hell. I, I mean, the one clip I did see where it was like a blonde haired, blue eyed comment was was from someone they were interviewing who was fleeing war. So I, I pay less attention to that. It still as problematic, but far more problematic is where you actually have reporters and news announcers framing it that way, right? Framing it as like, no, no, this this isn't Iraq. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's been galling. But I think it's easy to say you outright said it. That's atrocious. It's more complicated where the narrative is framed that way, but it's not being said. Yeah, you're basically saying that double ex standard exists anyways, and it's actually easier to address when people are like very blunt about it. Mm -hmm. I get <laughs> I get what you're trying to say. You've freelanced in other conflict zones uh, in the past, including Iraq, if I'm right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What was your experience when you were trying to pitch stories in Iraq versus when you were in Ukraine? Well, it's interesting because the experience freelancing from conflict zones has been actually across the, the board terrible because while we are paying attention to the, the Ukraine conflict now, when I was trying to freelance these pieces two and a half years ago, no one was interested. So the Ukrainians have had plenty of people ignoring their conflict up to this point as well. But it's also different when I was in Iraq, the type of coverage people were interested in. I was in Iraq the day that U.S. President Donald Trump was elected. And what they wanted to hear was people on the streets reacting to that. And I was like, I don't know. I think they're probably more preoccupied with fighting ISIS, like, would would be my suggestion. So it it's problematic in how we frame and what we're interested in talking about when we talk about international conflict. And I had, had this interesting moment with an editor. I did produce a doc for CBC out of my trip to Mosul. And it kind of was emblematic of the myopic nature of Canadian media in that we had an argument over a single word in our introduction to the piece. It was about safety. I was staying primarily in northern Iraq in Erbil, which was a very safe place to be. And I said that in the introduction, like the difference of 70 kilometers between ISIS-held territory and safety. And they said, relative safety. 
And I was like, no, it's safe. Like, I'm walking around. I'm going to stores, like, by myself. Like, this is safe. And then they pulled up, like, some news article of a bomb that had happened, like, three years ago at an embassy. And they were like, no, it's relative safety because it's still it's still not safe. And I was like, well, like, a bomb went off a few years ago at, a like, a law firm in Winnipeg. We don't call Canada relatively safe. Like, it, right. it really shows this unwillingness to view anywhere, I think, in the Middle East and Africa with any level of similarity, because then we'd actually have to engage with the conflicts that happen there, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I feel like there's parts of the world that many people have on the air been calling civilized the past few days, which is like, yep, yeah, that it is what it is. So basically, white people land Uh, have been yeah. have been have been um when conflict exists there the impulse is to be like how unthinkable it is to have conflicts over there like we thought it was over and then that's a region of the world that's thought of as like all the world right and so they're like basically people have been saying we haven't seen war in like 75 years well obviously we have but like because it hasn't been in europe as much as it was in the past like people and obviously there was the balkans and many other uh, conflicts in europe as well but there is basically raising that and just saying we haven't seen conflicts in the world because we haven't seen a lot of conflicts in europe and then they go on to describing you know the middle east and uh, africa and latin america and parts of uh, south asia as well as basically the land of like constant conflict right land of war uh, like throwing the towel on them you know the heart of darkness it's ex it's exactly what it is so that imaginary is still there so yeah. when there's conflict over there it's not shocking because conflict is expected suffering is expected death is expected that's just what it is when you live in the uncivilized world and so it, as long as that's going to be the the mindset we're not going to go anywhere in terms of having international news coverage that, that makes any sense. And I feel like a lot of people are remarking that double standard uh, in terms also of treatment of refugees. I find it tricky to be talking about that and also be like, yes, solidarity with the Ukrainian peoples. Obviously, what they're going through is awful. I find, I find it that when we are also trying to analyze that other piece of you know, that double standard, it's hard not to come across as insensitive to what's happening in Europe right now. And I'm still struggling with finding the right balance there. Well, and I think that the balance is probably that Ukraine shouldn't be an example of what we don't do. It should be an example of what we do. When when conflict breaks out and it has this human cost, like we should cover it appropriately. And I think the one, like I've, I've looked a lot of, of the, like, the outright blatant racist, classist also clips and the Oh, they were all disturbing, but the one that disturbed me the most was the one from Al Jazeera. Of Ukraine. And, and what's compelling is just looking at them, the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. That one disturbed me the most because that's actually where I get my news on the Middle East and North Africa is from Al Jazeera. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, this is coming from an outlet that I actually trust on those areas. Should I be rethinking that trust in that particular outlet? Al Jazeera is known for good coverage of the Middle East and North Africa. So it 
it's just upsetting. On the refugee piece, while I was in Ukraine, the other two countries I was reporting from was Poland and Hungary, where I was reporting on this like very stark move to the right wing in both of those countries. And in 2014, 2015, both of those countries put up walls and said, we are not accepting refugees, which at the time were mostly Syrian, because of quote unquote security concerns. And like the Hungarian prime minister actually going as far as to say that he didn't want Muslims in his country. I'm relieved to see that they are opening their doors to Ukrainians, but I think it probably belongs in the context of those stories that those two countries have been very racist in their selection of who they choose to let in their countries. Obviously, one of the big, the biggest maybe story that came out of that, that double standard when it comes to Eastern Europe is the story about African, mostly international students or just, you know, residents of Ukraine and their inability to leave the country and, and go to the Polish border. There's been lots of reports initially on social media, and then some news outlets started to pick it, pick it up on African nationals being told by Ukrainian authorities that uh, they need to wait in line behind Ukrainians to be able to get on trains and get on bus and cross, cross the, the border. It took days for news outlets to pick it up. It goes back to our earlier point, maybe, about like some narratives that don't fit in the script. And so we don't want to tell those stories. Yeah, I mean, I have definitely not seen that anywhere in, like, I, I've seen it on social media. I've not seen it surface anywhere in Canadian media still. I don't, yeah, no, there's, I don't been, there's been a story in the Globe and Mail. <laughs> okay. uh, there's, I've seen a story in La Presse, but it took a while. Like, it took a minute. Yeah. And, and it is hard, right? Because... Like you have to fit all of these different narratives together, and I recognize that that's all very difficult. But yeah, of course, igno ignoring it isn't isn't the answer. I'm kind of at a loss. Like, do better, I guess. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because we we've been like complaining a lot. I feel it in this episode or asking very difficult questions. So, like, what should people be doing differently? Like, one thing that's very easy to do. I think, is to retire the use of words like civilized and barbarian from international news coverage, regardless of the context, like forever. Yeah, I, I can't really think of a situation where it's used properly. <laughs> exactly. There's no way to use those words. There's no way to use the words without coming across as racist. It's just like, I cannot imagine a context in which it doesn't make you look racist because it you're saying those words because you are racist. Apart from that, what are you seeing that could be like, okay, so we've been renting a lot, but what what should like what should be done differently? Huh. I mean, I kind of remarked last night I was watching CBC on the coverage of the refugee crisis in Poland. And you know they've pulled out the big guns when they send Adrian Arsenal over. And so she actually did a great job of highlighting who she wasn't seeing. And partic particularly in that case, she was highlighting the fact that she was it, it wasn't a, a racial thing that she was highlighting. And so this doesn't help that problem. But she was talking about the age of people that older people are being left behind and they'll likely die in their homes because they can't move and they can't make the trip. So wow. people who say, like, we can't fit this into our coverage, like, it's just not true. What do you take away as lessons? If you're going to, for example, not dehumanize the entire people that follow the leader that's at war, 
like we're doing right now with Russians, for example, we're not demonizing them, we're just focusing on Vladimir Putin. I, I think it feels that's the focus in, in mainstream media. Uh, and that's what a lot of world leaders are also careful not to do, not to stigmatize all of the Russian people. Maybe we like do that for everyone and like not stigmatize Asians and Arabs and like Africans and whoever else is also have like leaders that really suck. Maybe from now on, we also, you know, humanize refugees also in our coverage, but also in our freaking opening of borders. <laughs> you know, we tell those stories and we don't like tell stories of refugees as potential terrorists if there is absolutely no way to prove that. And we're more careful about the way we talk about refugees and we're more careful about the way that we we cover conflicts without going into like violence porn as well. I feel like there's been a lot more sensitivity to not showing images of just, you know, body parts and whatnot, just because if people are seeing the victims of this conflict as human beings, they're more likely to, you know, think uh, of the image they're publishing and being thinking that this could be my family. If that's the reflex that you have right now covering this conflict, maybe you should Think exactly like that the next time you share a picture of a child starving in Yemen and be asking yourself, would if it was my child, would I be okay with this picture being taken the way it's been taken and, and have that same sensitivity to like trauma porn and, and violence porn and, and poverty porn as well when it comes to places that are not, you know, in Europe. The double standard is difficult because we don't give this coverage to other conflicts. It's not problematic because we're giving this conflict attention. It's it's problematic because we don't offer that in other places. And I mean, people will offer geopolitical reasoning for why we're paying more attention to this conflict, which is like fair since NATO, you know, has allies in the region that would actually trigger can Canada going to war, which isn't true in other parts of the world. But I really don't think we can be blind to our internal desire to make this like look more relatable because they're white like i think that really needs to be something that we internally pay attention to as journalists as we like go about this and for viewers like it, it's hard for me to want to ever shame anyone for you know really paying attention to this conflict when i've spent most of my life trying to get people to pay attention to conflict of course and so it's like maybe just think about caring about other conflicts as much as you care about this one yeah I guess it goes to your point when you're saying like you were struggling to get people to care. It's because maybe it's because, you know, Europeans are European, but they're also, you know, like marginalized within Europe or like at the very border of Europe. So like European passing or something. Of course, I'm using a word that's very complicated, but I think you know what I mean. Well, and maybe we have another conversation in a couple of weeks because to your point about trauma porn, like I think that that's actually a big part of what has drawn so much attention to it like that this is a crazy invasion okay but if it boils on for a long time and a lot of people die as is likely people will lose interest i think the same way that that we always do so trying not to you know uh, virtue signal too much here but like yeah we need to look we can't be so comfortable in our homes here and just be like yeah this is our life i don't need to think about that like we need to think about it not just in ukraine warning take it <laughs> So that's Shortcut for this week. Thank you for joining me. We are, of course, on Twitter at CanadaLand. 
You can email me at emily at canadaland.com. Where can people find you, Sarah? They can also actually find me at Sarah at canadaland.com if they want to shoot me an email, or you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Larnuk if you dare to try and figure out how to spell my last name. <laughs> this episode is produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Kieran Altshorn. Team music is from So Called. Syndication is by the CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you'd like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.